Good morning, church family. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we will be reading out of 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you, don't, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue Bible in your seat, front seat back, and uh, it's on page 176. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that Bible home with you today. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we, we thank you that your word is able to search us, to encourage us, to convict us, to correct us, to strengthen us, to obey. And we pray that, that in all of our hearts, with no exceptions, that your word would have one of these many effects today. As you see fit, God, not as we see fit. Lord, we don't sit in judgment of your word. Your word sits in judgment of us. So God, we ask you to do your work to reveal your will, to reveal your power, to reveal your steadfast love through the preaching of your word. God, help the preacher. Help him to be able to humble himself before your word, to let the word cleanse him before he delivers it to the people, Lord. Pray that you would just um, search us all and know us, Lord God, and let us leave this place today with rejoicing because we have been transformed by the written, the spoken word of God. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, I am very, very pleased to admit, or to confess rather, that rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. So, I am alive, I'm well, I was fairly well last Sunday. Uh, just full disclosure, we were just being very, very cautious. It's a, it's a time of life a season in the history of mankind where we need to be very cautious, amen? And so that's kind of where we were at. I uh, Turns out, it seems like, that I had a pretty nasty cold, um, but it was getting pretty intense. Saturday night, I called the elders, and their recommendation was to just uh, take the bench. And so they stepped up and, and did amazingly so. Guys, if you were here last week and you saw that, I was watching online. If you saw uh, what they did and what the Lord spoke through both Paul and David, 
Uh, you just need to be so grateful for the leadership God's put in the church because it, not only was it good, it was good in less than 12 hours is what it was. So it was fantastic. They did a great job, and I just want to publicly thank them uh, for just their their care for me and uh, their, their uh, ministry to the body of Christ. So thank you guys very much. So two weeks ago... I started kind of a loose sermon series, and what we talked about was the generosity of God. Um, we saw that God is generous. I think uh, very clearly saw that God is generous in several ways. One was the way that he created the world. He created the world and the universe by his own will, but also for his own glory. We saw that. And then, even though he created it by his own will, created it for his own glory, he does the strangest thing when he returns not to an angel, not even to Jesus, but to his image, his created image, and turns over full dominion of it to the human race. And we saw that even after humanity failed in the mandate that they'd been given to subdue the earth, that God further demonstrated his generosity by promising that a redemption was sure to come through Jesus. And that he even provided clothing for his exposed creatures as he sent them out into the earth. And then we saw God, as as the New Testament reveals Him, His nature was unchanging according to James 1.17. And and we saw that He also provides for us, as James puts it, every good gift and every perfect gift. And we talked about how this includes things like shelter and food and clothing. Aren't you grateful for just those three this morning? He says, but it also includes things like beneficial work and satisfying relationships. God is a provider of everything we need. And a good provider. God is the source of everything good in the life of every creature in the, on the earth that we inhabit. Now I want you to think about that. God is the provider of everything good. Every ladybug that has a meal today does so because of the goodness of God. And when you get up in the morning, after not having a massive heart attack in the middle of the night, you get up and you go to work to a job that provides you is because the same God that feeds ladybugs provided that for you. He is a good, generous God. It's his delight to constantly demonstrate his everlasting goodness, not just to the good guys, not just to the believers, but to all humanity. Jesus puts it like this. He says he makes the sunrise, get this, on the evil and on the good. The, the evil don't, get to, don't uh, fail to benefit from sunlight. He, it says that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What kind of a good God is that? I mean, all those bad guys should be living in drought, right? No. The steadfast mercy of God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And thank God, because at some point in our life, we're all a pretty good mixture of both, aren't we? Good and evil, just and unjust. But see, we are, because of that fall that Adam and Eve experienced, you and I are cursed with a limited and non-eternal perspective. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the revelation of the Word of God, that we ever see anything clearly. Would you agree with that? It's the only way we ever do it. We have a limited, non-eternal perspective, and the result of that is that we are oftentimes... 
completely oblivious to the goodness of God. I can testify that that's true in my life. I would assume that you would testify the same thing. And what we do is we don't realize that in His power, He can not only both bring glory to Himself and provide good for us. He does them both. And He does it even, He provides good things for us even out of the very worst of circumstances. This is one of the major hurdles that we all have to understanding the goodness of God is that your circumstances have no bearing on the goodness of God. Do you believe that? Now, we, we all believe it. We all believe it kind of in a head knowledge sort of way. But I guarantee if the wheels come off tomorrow morning, you might struggle to believe that God is good, right? I mean, can we just be that honest? But He is good. David, you guys are familiar with this passage. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the 23rd Psalm. David puts it like this. And sometimes we just read right over But listen to what he said. He says, you prepare a table before me. Ah, oh, great. God lays out a feast. But wait, hold on, we're not done with the verse. Where does God lay out the feast? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. While I'm being attacked, while the arrows are being shot, while the wheels, as I said, are coming off, God is laying out Thanksgiving dinner. That's the kind of God you serve. And most importantly... We examined how God loved us so much that He gave us the most generous gift of all when He gave us Jesus. When we were dead in our sin, having no hope and without God in the world, Jesus became for us the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And He justified us with His own righteousness by His death on the cross. And there could be no greater example of God's generosity than to exchange His perfect Son for a bunch of depraved, ungrateful sinners as we all are. And yet He did it. There could be no greater demonstration of love than Jesus Himself showed when He freely laid down His life as the sacrifice for all of us fallen men and women. And we saw how God provides everything. Everybody say everything. We saw how God provides everything that pertains to life and godliness, is the way the Apostle Peter put it. So that we might become partakers of the divine nature. If you are ever going to get there, whatever there is in your spiritual life, it is going to be because, it's going to be because, it's going to be because you have been equipped by God to get there. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness, and none of it is being generated by yourself. Uh, if you believe that, I promise you, guaranteed, money back guarantee, it's going to set your soul free. That you are not producing anything that is going to get you to life and godliness. But that's okay. Because God has already provided and generously given everything you need for life and godliness. And this includes power. This includes wisdom. This includes Peace. It, it, it includes supernatural love, etc., etc., etc. And it's all given, not as, as, you know, God doesn't send those things to us via Amazon. He sends it to us via His very own holy presence, the very person of God in the person of the Holy Spirit living right there inside of you. What more could you ask for than to be the walking, living, breathing, talking throne room of Almighty God? 
Now, while we should never, ever, ever stop thanking God for His good provision of our daily needs of food and shelter, or His eternal provision of justification, sanctification, glorification through Christ, we want to take a look this morning at a God who not only provides these things that we all need generously and generally, but we also want to look at a God who provides for us individually and specifically. Did you know that when God, when the Bible tells us in John 3.16 that God so loves the world, it is not speaking in general terms. And it's a proper interpretation for you to read that passage of Scripture, for God so loved Bobby, for God so loved Matthew, for God so loved Nita, for God so loved Kendra. You can read it like that because God is not a God who paints with a wide brush. He leaves the 99 to go find the what? The one. And you are that one. You were that one. God loves you individually. And all of us sometimes wrestle with the fact that God, yeah, God loves everybody else in the room. But I want you to know that God loves you. He sees you. He cares for you. He's close to you. He wants to minister to you. And He sees where you're at right now. He sees the deepest need that you have right now. And just knowing that can give great freedom to our souls. And this passage that Jennifer read for us this morning helps us to see this truth so beautifully. So Elisha is the subject, the the main character in this passage that we read. You may not know a lot about Elisha. He lived about 800 years before the birth of Jesus. And he had been preceded, immediately preceded in history, um, and, and he was mentored by Elijah, who was another great prophet in Israel's history, Elisha, the second guy, began his ministry during a time of incredible national wickedness and idolatry in Israel. But what was amazing about Elisha is that no matter what was going on in the culture, that God was with Elisha. Now, is there a lesson there for any of us? You can spend a lot of time, a lot of energy as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, walking around as the temple of the Holy Spirit, knowing that God is right with you, worrying about what's going on in the culture. Can I hear an amen on that? You can get really stressed out with Fox News and CNN blaring all day. But what what Elisha did is he allowed himself to be full of the presence and the power of God and obeyed God and he brought change to the culture that was so corrupt and so fallen. And so God was with him, and many miracles were performed by him. Can I give you just a sampling of those? By this point in the story, Elisha had used Elijah's cloak that fell from heaven as he was going up to heaven to part the Jordan. He just whacked the water and the river parted. And this recalled Israel's entry into the promised land. He'd caused a poisoned well to miraculously provide drinkable water. He'd seen, seen, now this is the cool one, he'd seen two bears devour a group of children who were mocking him. I have longed for those kind of miracles in our day. (laughs) He caused water to be provided abundantly for a thirsty army, and he told uh, this, this king who was fighting how to be victorious in battle, all through the wisdom of God. All this happened, everything I just mentioned happened in just two chapters of the Bible. Many more miracles would mark Elisha's ministry before his story was done. And even in his death, God used his rotting bones to bring a man back to life. I'll let you look that story up yourself. 
But no prophet in Israel, in the entire Bible, besides Jesus, did more miracles than Elisha. So this is who we're dealing with in this passage. And part of his ministry was to lead a group of prophets, of uh, budding young prophets in this time of great national wickedness. They were known as the sons of the prophets or the school of the prophets. And he mentored them like uh, Elijah had done for him. And these young men, I want you to understand the situation. This wasn't just a seminary. It wasn't just a Bible school. These young men were the last hope of Israel. They were the absolute last hope. The, 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 uh, the, the nation was circling the drain on its way to hell. And, and God had raised up this group of young men led by Elisha to, to address the nation. They were faithful and they were courageous and they were dedicated to proclaiming God's words. Even at the very risk of their lives from evil kings. And that's where we enter the story. So let's look at that very first verse again. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophet, cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know, you know, Elisha, that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now, I want you to think about this. Don't just read it. Don't just file it in a history file. Think about what you're reading there. This woman was one of the good guys. She was one of the good guys. Her husband had proclaimed God's word in an idol-worshipping nation that didn't want to hear it. And now, though he feared the Lord and demonstrated that fear of the Lord with his very life, he was dead. And worse, with his income now gone, this woman could not pay her debts. And soon... Because of the culture, the slavery culture of the time, she would see creditors balance those past due accounts by taking her sons, in her only hope of income, as slaves. So if we're honest, you look at a situation like this, and you've seen them, not only in Scripture, but in modern times, you've seen them around you. You're honest, you look at a situation like this, and it seems incredibly Unfair. Can we at least agree with that? Seems like she's getting a pretty raw deal. Well, thanks a lot, God. I, I, my husband gave his life in service of you, and now, now everything's coming apart. She might be saying, like some of us do, that no good deed goes unpunished. And we rightly imagine that a woman like this, from a family like this, with a husband like this, should be honored, she should be protected, but her life is turning to a nightmare before her very eyes. Life is like that sometimes, isn't it? It is. Life stinks sometimes. People get sick. Spouses and children die. There's not enough money to take care of your most basic needs. We're victims of injustice. But you see, when you look at that reality, and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to realize that something is true that was also true with this woman. And it is this simple fact. If you are still drawing air into your lungs, your story isn't over yet. And that's what this woman didn't know. 
She thought she was about to see the inscription of the end written across your, uh, her life. You are sitting here right now in this climate-controlled room, and you're thinking that just any minute now the credits are going to roll, and you're going to see the end on your life, and you're not ready for the story to be over because you're in pretty bad shape. But I'm telling you that those of us who trust in the Lord have Him as our eternal hope. Our hope in Jesus doesn't even die when we I mean, it doesn't even end when we die. It goes on and on and on. That's what makes it eternal. And I want you to know this morning, your story is not over yet. Let's see what happened with her. Elisha said to her, "What shall I do for you?" Question number one. Tell me. Question number two. What have you in the house? And she said, "Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil." The questions that Elisha asks both of them are crucial. I want you to understand, Elisha is not having small talk. He's not having meaningless, idle chatter with this woman. He is God's representative. He is the one standing in the place of God in this situation. And I believe that like Elisha asked in his first question, that God is always looking at us in the eyeballs of our soul, right in the very center of our need, and he is saying, and this should give you great comfort, he is saying, what shall I do for you? God is saying to you this morning, With all manner, if I set up a microphone right now and I just said, tell us your biggest need, some of us would be horrified at the depth of need that's in this room right now. But God, eternally unchanging, as James told us two weeks ago, is saying, what shall I do for you? And here's the problem. Most of us cannot hear God saying that. Why? We can't hear the question because we're busy fretting over what we can do for ourselves. God is not considered by most of us if we're honest. Honesty is always required when you hear His Word. God is not considered by most of us to be a viable option. Because we load ourselves down with alternatives. We load ourselves down with plan B. We, we load ourselves down with the idea of it's, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Here's what I'm going to do. And we're never out of options. He, so we don't have God to be considered as our only hope, our only dependence. It's a, it's a shame that we do this. Because as we saw last week, God loves to give generously. And although he provides rain for both the just and the unjust, he loves to be approached and to be asked in faith by the children he loves so much. And the perspective from here is interesting. I mean, my my getting to look out at all of you, you guys only get to look at one person. But I get to look at all of you and I can see kind of the, the tension when I say this, that, that, yeah, that's easy for you to say, Mark, because you don't know where I'm at and you don't know what I'm going through and, and uh, what if God doesn't do this and what if, you know, we have all that. 
But we only do that because we've forgotten that God loves to give uh, generously. He's already demonstrated that in his gift of the earth, and his gift of his son. And we talked about all that. But, but we forget that he loves to hear his children. He loves to provide for them. Aren't you and I who have children, aren't we like that with our kids? Aren't we? I loved providing, I loved being the provider of the necessities for my children. But I loved it more when my kids would ask me for something special, something out of the ordinary that they needed or that they wanted. And it was a joy for me to provide for them when they trusted me to do so. And it was heartbreaking the times that I was unable to do so. But what I want you to understand about God is He is never unable to do so. Never. And I want you to understand that yes, there are times when God will delay or God will say no, but even that is because He's working all things, we read the scripture last time, all things together for your good. He knows what's best, and he's always got your best interests at heart. Uh, but, but let's focus this week on just the limitless possibilities of what God could do for you. Jesus kicked all the boundaries off of it when he said this. You know this passage? Ask, and it will be given to you. What, wait, what were the qualifications of that? What did Jesus say? What, what, uh, what, you know, what's the uh, fine print of that contract with Jesus? Did you all read that? That's all. Ask. Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open for you. And if Jesus writes the next verse, verse 8, in case you didn't hear what he said, he said, For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. And then he describes the nature of the Father. He says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? If he asked for fish, would give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? James said this. He said, you have not because you ask not. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. So God loves to be asked. But the second question Elisha asks is of equal importance. And I don't want you to miss it. He says, tell me, what have you in the house? One of the biggest lies you'll ever hear is this one. You've probably said it, you've definitely heard it, and it's this. God helps those who what? It's the biggest lie you'll ever hear in the world. I don't think that Elisha was asking about her resources, what was in her house, because he wants her to help herself. Go figure it out with what you got, lady. But he wants to know if she is willing to trust the Lord with the very little that she does have. And what can this teach us? I've lost count. It's one of the fun things about being a pastor. I've lost count of the people over the last, say, 30 years who've told me that if they just could win the lottery, they would make sure that whatever church I was serving at that time would never need another nickel. 
Ah, Pastor Mark, if I could just win the lottery, I would write such a big fat check to the church, they would never need to take another offering. But I'm always just a tad skeptical. And why would you say that? Because usually people who say that they would entrust millions to God's work are robbing him of much less every single week. It does not become easier to give just because you have a lot. In fact, many people find it more difficult. Jesus himself said one of the most tr- things that troubled the disciples the most when he said, Behold how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus had this little uh, object lesson. He's standing in the temple watching people uh, at the offering time. And he says, the Bible says Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And they're, man, they're bringing it. They're loading it up. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. I think it's Mark that tells us those copper coins amounted to one penny. And he said, truly I tell you, pay close attention to his words. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contribute out of their abundance. They had it to, they, it was great. It was a tax write-off. They could, they could afford to lose it. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. See, Jesus wasn't counting the dollars. He was counting the sacrifice. Because he wanted the widow to suffer? No, listen to the rest of the story and you'll find out that that was not the case. See, the widow tells Elisha that she has nothing. I got nothing. I always thought it was interesting, the wording of that passage. She says, I have nothing. Oh, except, just remember, Elisha, you have this teeny tiny little itty bitty jar of oil. Her supply... I'm not thinking that she was being deceptive now. What I want to say to you is I believe that her supply was so insignificant by any reasonable standard that she accounted it as nothing. You know, if I have a tablespoon of peanut butter in the house and you come over for dinner, I'm going to tell you I ain't got nothing. You say, well, you got a tablespoon of peanut butter, and I'll say, help yourself. So her supply, as little as it was, was to be accounted as nothing. But I want you to hear this. Take this home with you. Stew in it all week long. It is amazing what God can do with your nothing. It is incredible what God can do. I remember in the story of the Exodus, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush, and he asks a similar question that Elisha asked to the woman. He says, what do you have in your hand, Moses? Moses looks in his hand obediently. He says, a stick. It says it's a staff, just a wooden stick. And God said, throw it down. And it became a serpent. And this is a sidebar, has nothing to do with the message. But one of my favorite passages for its, its uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, humor and obviousness, it says, and Moses threw it down, it became a serpent, and he fled from it. Good job, Moses. That was probably the right decision there. So... Um, so God, if you read through the rest of the story, God uses this wooden stick, all he had in his hand, to perform all kinds of miracles while freeing his people from slavery. And it's all he had, just the stick. God, or in the form of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus took a little boy's lunch consisting of a few fish sticks and a couple of cold rolls, and he fed over 5,000 people with it. What? Could God do with your nothing? When we acknowledge how little we have, it's easy to see how impossible our situation is. 
But when we give it up in faith, we will see God work through it. Not some get-to-get scheme. It's because I'm saying, okay, God, I'm not trusting in this little that I have. I'm trusting in the bigness of a God. I am dependent on you. I am relying on you. My faith is in nothing less than the fountain of all blessing. Here's your question this morning. What is in your house? What is in your hand? What's in your lunchbox? And to quote a very famous advertisement, what's in your wallet? To you, it may seem like nothing. So small, it doesn't even matter. It can't even be calculated. But if you will put it in God's hands, you will see what He can do with it. Anybody found that to be true? Then Elisha said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons, pour into all these vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. Elisha tells her to go into the neighborhood, collect every empty cup, every empty bowl, every Tupperware container in the neighborhood. Something unheard of was about to happen. She was to get behind closed doors, And she was to pour out her very little trickle of oil into the empty vessels. And the promise was amazing. It was that the oil would not run out, but it would keep on pouring. When one vessel was full, she was to set it aside and start with the next. It must have been frightening to take the little she had and pour it out. But here's where we see an undeniable reality of the Christian life. God... I want you to hear this. If you're wondering why you're not seeing God's power released in your life, God rarely moves until we sacrificially let go of what we have. Whatever it is that you have, God is rarely going to move until you say, I'd rather have Jesus. And you empty your hands. Perhaps we don't experience His power more often, as I said earlier, because we've Never let ourselves run out of options. Remember the story of the woman who was healed of the issue of blood, crawls through the crowd, touches Jesus' hem of his garment. You know why she was healed, I believe? I, I don't know if this, this would hunt, but I, I, I think it's true. It's because the Bible said she'd spent everything she had, every penny on doctors, everything she had. She was out of options. And she looked in faith only to Jesus. And she was healed. Jesus said that the one who wants to find his life would lose it. But he said the one who would be his disciple is required to give up all that he has. To pour out the little trickle of oil you think you have. A follower of Christ, in order to be a follower of Christ, to be genuine, to be valid, must relinquish all titles, all reputations, all desires, all possession, all time, all relationships, all money, and every place in this world, both literally and figuratively. Otherwise, you are not a follower of, Je- of Jesus. You are a Jesus hobbyist. You are a Jesus hobbyist until your hands are empty. Now, if you're like me... If you think that sounds grandiose, you're like, come on, Mark, you know, hands empty. Yes, I mean what I say. But if you're like me, you, you constantly are going through life thinking you're trusting Jesus, and then you look down and your hands are full. And you just got to go like this, say, no, 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 no. 
I am trusting only in Jesus. I am putting all of my hope, all of my dependence in Jesus alone. You cannot call yourself a Christian while your hands are are clutching. They may have stuff in them, but if you're not emptying them out, you cannot call yourself a Christian. A Christian is someone who depends and relies and clings only to Jesus. But the mystery of belonging to Christ is not that he who, uh, who loses his life uh, not trying to save it is one... Uh, I'm sorry, the mystery of belonging to Jesus is the one that he who loses his life not trying to cling to it, not trying to save it, but who truly loses it is the one who truly saves it. See, it, I, I, I hate sometimes talking in our culture about faith because faith has been so maligned. It's been so ridiculously uh, underdefined. Today, faith is believing God for a new house or a new car or some other material benefit or emotional benefit. But see, faith, true faith, biblical faith, is throwing your life away, believing in a little Jewish carpenter, only discover that that little Jewish carpenter happens to be the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. So how's our story proceed? So she went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And the oil stopped flowing. Losing your life in Jesus is always, again, here's another, I'm giving you ways to mark the reality of your faith in Christ. And here's another one. Losing your life in Jesus is always evidenced by obedience. You cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus if you are not obeying what Jesus said. Jesus himself said that. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? So this woman, as a great example of this, did exactly what Elisha had commanded, as silly as it seemed. Can you imagine going down your block, getting everybody's bowl, cup, dish, whatever, anything that would hold anything in your house, bringing it in there, looking at a a, a tablespoon of oil and saying, okay, let's get to pouring. It's silly. It's ridiculous. Most of the miracles of God start with an absurdity. That's what makes them miracles, folks. But she got alone with her sons and started pouring until all the containers were full. And when they were, the oil stopped. But let yourself imagine, rewrite the story and imagine if she had not obeyed Elisha. What if she collected only a few containers because she didn't want to look like an idiot? You know, I'll go to one house, maybe two, but I'm not going to the whole block because I don't want to look like you know some kind of religious nut. Or what if the prophet's instructions uh, simply made no sense to her? She said... Uh, Thanks for your help, Elisha, but I'm going to go get a payday loan. Surely, even if she'd only had one or two containers, the oil would have still poured, but she wouldn't have had enough for her need. That would have, surely, to have so little when she had such a great need, surely would have been worse for her, knowing what could have been done by God. What if she'd collected every vessel in town... But God discouraged and never poured out the oil because it struck her as ridiculous. Or she was afraid to lose what little she had. What if she clings so much to that little trickle of oil that she never poured it out? Listen to me carefully. I am speaking truth to you. Where there is no obedience, there is no faith. 
Don't ever tell anyone you are, that you believe in Jesus if you're not obeying Jesus. Where faith is not present, no miracle can ever be expected. Starting with the miracle of being born again. See, what happens in our life is from a work of God, not from us, faith is born. But when faith is born, obedience responds and then miracles occur. But because faith and obedience were at work together in this lady's sense, the promise was fulfilled and her need was met. There was no lack and she had all that she needed. Faith and obedience, hand in hand, wedded together, never to be separated. James 2.17, everybody in this room probably knows the verse. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is... This is not to say that we work to earn anything from God. We've been over that and over that in this church. James said every good and perfect gift is from God. We don't work for gifts, we work for wages. But it means, what this means is that God's goodness isn't passively received. Yes, he reigns on the, on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the good and the evil. But, but to, to really receive specific blessings from God, they are received by an obedient, trusting heart. Paul speaks of both the free gift of God, and then he speaks of obedience to the truth, of obedience to his teaching. Whenever God speaks, our belief of what he said is not valid until we've obeyed. I cannot stress that enough. Everything else that you claim to be belief is false or at worst ineffective belief. So here's the end of the story. She came and told the man of God and he said, Go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Now you may have never considered this. But I want you to see this. God provided for her need. But this miracle was not intended to recur for her. Did you follow me on that? Why is this important? She was not told to write a a Christian bestseller and sell it on TBN on how to pour your way to wealth. She was not told to go into the miracle olive oil business. See, what I want you to hear is that God... No matter how he provides for your needs, God will never allow himself to be reduced to a formula. He is not a formula, he is a father. He is not some uh, you know, resource, he's a relationship. He will be known. And this is the grave fallacy of the prosperity gospel. It tells you that there's secrets to unlock to get what you want from God. You don't even ever have to relate to him. Just, just you need to know how to pick his lock. But I want you to know, as I said, God is not a loan officer. God is a father who gives good gifts to his children for the simple fact that he loves them. We don't know what happened to this lady. She's not mentioned again in scripture, but I suppose that her life and all of her anxieties were forever impacted by meeting and knowing the God that provides. I'm going to ask you for probably the fifth time to be really, really honest. Have you met this God? Now before you nod at me, 
I lowered my eyes because I don't want to put anybody in the position of being a hypocrite. I asked if you've met the God that provides and, you, and your confidence is in Him. You will know by reflecting on your conversations of last week. I'm not even talking about your life. I'm talking about last week. We don't have enough. Everything always goes wrong for us. Why is everybody always out to get me? If that is the dominating theme of your conversations, you have not met the God who provides. You haven't met Him. You haven't trusted Him. You haven't thrown your life into His hands. Trusting in His promises, His power, and more importantly, His steadfast love for you. Do you trust His Word? Do you trust His power? Or are all your chips pushed to the center of the table, betting on your own abilities, your clever schemes, or the best wisdom leaking out of this world? One of the things that I'm really, I think I mentioned this two weeks ago, but I'm really in a place where I am trying to approach God's Word, and I'm talking about just personally, not in what I give to you on Sunday mornings. I am really trying to learn to approach God's word as promises. The Bible tells me that God is not a man who can lie or, or would lie. Or, uh, and, and so when I approach God's word, sometimes I, I, I read them as kind of poetry or proverbial things. But I want to say when, when I read something in God's word, I want to understand that God is not speaking just to you know, somebody that's been dead for thousands of years. He is giving me his eternal word spoken through Jesus to, to be a, a, an eternal promise to me and realizing that to not trust that promise is sin and that I want to trust the promise. So if you can acknowledge that you also sometimes struggle to put the full weight of your faith into the promise, can can you... Maybe just in a moment of time, just repent of that. And can I leave you with a great promise? That you can, if you have a pen nearby, write it down. Take it home, put it on your mirror. Recite it to yourself the first thing in the morning. Here's an old term we don't talk about much in church anymore. You might even memorize it. Memorize this passage and and let God, when you begin to feel that complaining, I don't have enough, everybody's always out to get me, this sort of thing, you can say this, remind your soul of this passage and it'll change your life. It's Psalm 37, 25, and this is David reflecting on his life and he says this, I've been young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. That means God sees, God knows, God cares, and God provides. It's a promise to you. Write it down. Put it everywhere you need to look. Put it in your car. Put it in your, on your mirror. Your, put it in your kitchen. Wherever you can see it to remind yourself that you are not coming to a God who doesn't see where you're at. And a God that's going to make you starve to death. I have never... Been young, been old, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread, his children begging for bread. I, uh, I told somebody, I'm kind of in the middle of that verse. I had guys at the men's breakfast yesterday teasing me for being old. I won't say their name, but their initials are Gabriel Castro. And they were, um, they, 
they were giving me a hard time about being old yesterday morning, and and I was telling Judy Edwards, who's you know a little older than me, I was telling her that that uh, uh, I'm in the perfect place to be the pastor of this church because uh, half the uh, half the uh, church thinks I have one foot in the grave, and the other pa- half thinks I'm a whippersnapper, and so it's kind of a, a weird place to be in in uh, in my life right now. But I can agree with David that in youth and older age, I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Or his children begging for bread. And that's not because of the children. Did y'all hear me? It's not because of the, the righteous. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. So let's all stand. <coughs> hmm. I, it seems like the last several messages I've preached, I've really thought it very important to end with a opportunity for you. I, I never want to preach messages that are just, you know, for, uh, as I said a couple weeks ago, oratory or, or you know, entertainment, God forbid. And um, I want you to just take a time. I, I can't even tell you how. I don't know where you're at with your trust in the Lord, but I just want you to take a moment and repent of your reliance on yourself. You're, you're uh, ignoring the great promise and provision of God, you're setting up for yourself alternative options so that you don't have to just fall into His arms and depend on Him and rely on Him and cling, on, cling to Him. I, I want you to just examine your life and do it as honestly as you can. Where are you withholding from God? For some of you, it's as simple as you know, giving financially. And I'm not even talking about just this church. I'm just talking about you just are generally a stingy, stingy person. See it in the way you tip. You see it in the way you give to churches. You see it in the way you give to charities. You see it in the way you help other people out. You're just generally stingy. And God is calling you now to be sacrificial. To say, hey, I'm going to demonstrate my obedience in this area by opening my hands and letting some stuff fall out. I'm just calling you to that. I'm not calling you that because I want you to, to you know, die on some cross. I'm calling you that because what this dirty little secret is, is that's the only way you're ever going to experience freedom. Do you hear me? It's the only way you'll ever experience freedom. So I'm calling you to that freedom this morning. I'm calling you to that. It's how we learn to trust the Lord, to trust Him with our stuff. So I'll be quiet for a second. And I just want you to examine your heart and ask God where you're, where you're missing His good promise in this and the power that could be available to you. And then just repent of it. Just take a few seconds and do that. Now I want you to envision yourself answering God as he asks you the two questions. What shall I do for you? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He's asking you right now, the Holy Spirit of God who resides inside you as a believer in Jesus Christ, what shall I do for you? I'm calling you up to guts this morning. Ask him. Lay it before him. What shall I do for you?
What is your heart crying out for? Where is your fear centered? What shall the Lord God Almighty do for you? Now, from the voice of the Holy Spirit, the second question comes. What do you have in your house? What are you clinging to that you think is giving you some sort of stability, some sort of life, some sort of standing, some sort of option? What's in your hand? What's in your house? What's in your lunchbox? What's in your wallet? And God is saying, do you trust me? I've asked you what I can do for you. You, Do you trust me to take that little jar of nothing and pour it out before me? Let God know what it is. Some of you may be terrified at the thought of pouring anything out. But you know what? Ask and you shall receive. Ask Him for strength. And He'll give you the strength to trust Him with what little you have. He will not fail you or forsake you. So how do you take this message and apply it to communion? I want you to understand before you partake that there was a time in human history when God looked on the earth and he saw that it was just absolutely depraved. It was dead in its sin and its trespasses. And he shouted across the centuries. He said, what shall I do for you? And our hearts cried out for redemption, for relief, for rescue. And then God said to us, he said, what do you have in your hand? And we looked in our hands and we said, I got nothing. I got nothing. I I don't have a little trickle of oil. I don't have a couple of pieces of bread or fish. I got no wooden stick. I got nothing. So what God did is in his generosity, as I said earlier, he did a whole lot with our nothing. He came, and his first Corinthians five I'm sorry, second Corinthians five twenty one says it says that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God took our nothing on himself on the cross and he gave us his everything in Jesus. If you can't trust God for daily provision, then you need to reflect on what we're about to do and realize that God has never withheld anything from you, but he has given you all the wealth of heaven to make you his own. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's take the bread together
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Now, like Christ did on that night so long ago, can we give him thanks for his provision of Jesus? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You are, you are so good to us to provide Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness. You said that no one takes your life from you, but you lay it down freely. And you said if you lay it down, you'll take it back up again. And you have. You rose gloriously on the third day, and you sit enthroned with your Father in heaven right now, hearing our prayers, answering our needs. Lord God, and we thank you for that. You are a good, good God. Now, if you would, just extend your hands in a receiving position. And in light of this message, I could not think of a better scripture. I wanted to just read this over you, and I want you to make it your own. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask, all we think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.